through David's story the past couple of weeks, one of the, one of the really consistent themes that we've had um, is we've seen David, we've seen David's life not really go like how he thought it was going to go. I don't know if anybody in here um, has already had that like experience in your life or like, yeah, there's a lot that's already kind of happened in my life that I didn't really want it to go that way or I didn't think it was going to go that way. You've had a disappointment, you've had a letdown or worse. Um, and so for David, what we're learning is that we don't want the trouble of life and however you define trouble or affliction or doubt or despair or discouragement, however you kind of put that, you define that word trouble. It can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But we don't want the trouble of life to, to cause us to forget that we're anointed by God. Because if you remember early in David's life, that's what happens to him. Samuel shows up and there's this anointing on David's life. Like, that God has something specific for David. It's not revealed to him in that moment. Um, and even as David is kind of progressing and moving forward, it seems like it's getting murkier and murkier and not clearer and clearer. And maybe for your life too, it feels like, yeah, I, it doesn't really seem like it's getting clearer and clearer. In fact, it gets more and more complicated. There's more and more trouble. There's, there's, there's more and more things that seem further away from, God, are you in this? Are you paying attention to my life? Are you, are you directing this? Are, are you anywhere? Are you near? Are you anywhere near what's going on? And if you've been looking at David's life, you've been tracking with us, it could, it could start to feel like that. It could start to look like that. But what we're going to see again from David's life, what we've already been learning, is that don't let the trouble of life cause you to forget that you are anointed by God. And that God is the shepherd in Psalm 23 who takes us, he takes us through the valley to the green pasture, again through the valley. And that really is the cycle of life. Like, you, you have these moments where, like, this is just green pasture. This just feels great. Things are clicking. Like, I'm healthy. Uh, like, uh, school's going well. Work is going well. Relationships are going well. I feel like I'm connected to God. And then there are these valley moments where you're like, I didn't expect that call from the doctor. I didn't expect that call from my boss. I didn't expect that call from my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I didn't expect that call from my parents. There are these valley moments. And what we learn from Psalm 23 and what we learn from David's life is that God really is the shepherd who is with him. Doesn't just send him. He's like, hey, by the way, this pasture is great. I'm going to hang here. You head through the valley on your own. No, he says, you go. You go with me. And we pick that up in chapter 25. So in chapter 25, it starts with some really bad news again for David. Samuel um, who is the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, Samuel dies. David's on the run. If you remember, he has been being chased by Saul. So Saul is the current king. David is the anointed king, the heir apparent to uh, the, the throne of Israel. Saul is extremely jealous and envious of David because David has had military success. And because he's had military success, he's had the fame of people. Saul absolutely lives for the fame of people. And now it's leaving Saul and it's, and it's on David. So Saul wants to kill David. So David is running and running and running. So we find David, he's in the wilderness. He sends some of his messengers down to this kind of farm community thing to this guy named Nabal. And the messengers go down to Nabal and they say, hey, Nabal, when your shepherds, the guys who take care of your sheep, when your shepherds were around us, we actually protected them. And we didn't harm them. We didn't steal any of your sheep. We provided a service to you. We're stuck out here in the wilderness. Can, 
can we get some food? Can we get some resources? And Nabal, uh, Nabal whose name means fool, uh, it says that if you're reading 25, his name, his name means fool. Nabal says, I don't know you. You don't know me. Who, who are you guys? Like, who is this David? Who's this David who leaves his master? Who, who is the son of Jesse? I've never heard of you, which everybody's heard of David, by the way. Um, and so he's like, you guys are going to get after here. You don't get anything. So David's wife, or excuse me, Nabal's wife, Abigail, Abigail. <laughs> this, is, this is why I preach for an hour. <laughs> um, Nabal's wife, Abigail, is like, no, man, Nabal is acting a fool for real because he's a fool. And so she packs up all these, re- she, she packs up food, she packs up cakes, she packs up um, like clothes and stuff. She packs up all this stuff and she heads out after, like towards the messengers who are going back to David. The messengers go to David and they're like, look, we went and we asked Nabal, hey, can you hook us up? Nabal said, I don't know you. You need to get out of here. David literally says, strap on your swords. Regulators, mount up. It's time to regulate. And so he gets his boys together and they start heading down and they, and Abigail catches him and she jumps off of her horse mule thing. Um, horse mule, and she, she's, she says, she falls on the ground, and she's like, my husband is a fool. That's his name. He is a fool. So spare his life, take this stuff, and just go on your way. And David says, because of you, because of your goodness and your kindness, and because of your smart intelligence, we're going to have mercy on your husband. So David turns around, goes back to his kind of area. She goes home, and Nabal is like, well, he's drunk, so because that's what Nabal does. I'm drunk. And so Nabal is at home. He's having a party. He's drunk. And so Abigail says, well, I'm not going to try to talk to him when he's drunk, so I'll wait in the, for the morning for when he sobers up, and then I'll tell him what I did. So he wakes up, hungover but sober, and she says, yeah, so just so you know, those guys who came from David and asked for all this food and asked for all this stuff, I actually gave him a whole bunch of your stuff. And the Bible says that his heart turned to stone, so he's like, ah. And so he has a heart attack. Four days later, he dies. So he, he dies. Abigail goes to David, and as is David's custom, he takes Abigail for his wife. So if you read David's, David has like a grip of wives. He's got a bunch of wives. So, so that's, that's chapter 25. You really got to read your Bible. It's great. So chapter 26, David again happens upon Saul. So if you remember, the last time we were together, we talked about this scene where David's in the cave. Lions on one side, Saul's army on the outside of the cave, and David's in the middle. And it just so happens that Saul chooses that cave to go in and relieve himself. And all of David's buddies are like, oh, now is the time. We can finally stop running. You can finally become the king that you're meant to be. All you got to do is just go kill Saul while he's going to the bathroom. David sneaks up to him. And all his buddies are like, "Cut, kill him, kill him, kill him. And what David does, he doesn't kill him, but he cuts the corner of his robe. And David is so stricken with grief that he would lay a hand on God's man that he, he takes that corner of the robe and he's like, what in the world am I doing? Who am I that I would lay a hand on God's anointed? And he goes out and he tells Saul, he's like, Saul, look, man, I could have just killed you. So can we please knock all this stuff off? And Saul says, you know what? You're a better man than I. I'll stop. I'll go, I'll stop. I'll stop chasing you. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let it go. 
which he doesn't. Saul doesn't stop chasing him. So once again, David happens upon Saul. And it just so happens that he kind of catches Saul while he's asleep. And he's asleep, and all his army, all his men are around him. And, and while he's sleeping, his spear is stuck in the ground next to him, and his water jug, his, his, uh, his, his water jug is right next to his head. And so David has these mighty men of valor. They're like, they're like his like SEAL Team 6. And so he tells uh, some of his guys, he's like, go down there. Actually, the guys say to David, sorry. The guys go, go down to David and they're like, look, okay, David, can we finally kill this dude? Like, we had a chance to kill him in the cave. You wouldn't let us kill him. Can we finally kill him? And in fact, one of the guys says, look, his spear is right there. I'll stab him once. I won't stab him twice. That's what the Bible says. He's like, it'll take one, one stab. Ah, got him. And we'll be, we'll be done. And David says, go down there, steal his spear, and steal his water jug. So the guy sneaks in. Asks all of Saul's army. Saul's sleeping, never wakes up. Steals a spear, steals a jug, takes it back to David. David's up on a hill. He's like, yo, Saul, look what I got. I got your spear, and I got your hydro flask, man. I could have killed you. Are you ready to let it go? And again, Saul's like, yeah, I am. I'm ready to let it go. You could have killed me. You're a better man than I. You know, forgive me, all this kind of stuff. And David's like, this this dude is not going to quit. He's not going to quit. So David has, this, David has this great idea. In chapter 27, David's like, okay, I'm going to go to a place where Saul really will stop pursuing me. So David's running like all over the wilderness, in and out of caves, in and out of like all these kind of random spots. And so David's like, I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. Now, if you remember, the Philistines are the army of, are, they're, they're the enemies and enemy army against the Israelites, right? So Goliath, that whole story, those are the Philistines. And, and David's like, I know Saul won't go in there. So Saul, or so David goes into the land of the Philistines and he goes and talks to the, the, the king and he says, look, can I just live in like a small little corner? Can I live in a small little uh, part of, of, of your territory? I won't mess with anything. Just give me a little bit of spot for me and my, my few hundred people that I've got with me. And so the king's like, yeah, we have this piece of property that we really hate. Uh, it's called Apache Junction. No, just kidding. It's not. Sorry. If, if you're from Apache Junction, welcome. We love that you're here. Um, no, he's like, look, go set up camp at this place called Ziklag, which is Hebrew for Apache Junction. So, um, so he goes and he goes, now this is, now David is a compulsive liar, but he's also kind of brilliant. During this time, what David does is he launches these military strikes from Ziklag. So here's David, Israelite, living in Philistine territory. And from Philistine, Philistine, dang it, Philistine <laughs> territory, He's launching these military attacks against his enemies. And he goes and he, he'll wipe out like a tribe or a village over here. And then he goes back to the Philistine camp and he, and he says, look, I just did this raid on Judah. Meaning, I just did a raid on another Israelite tribe. I just did another raid on my own people. And he, and he does this like a few times. And so this king is like, man, this David, he like really, really is against his own people. I mean, he goes to battle and he plunders their whole tribe. He plunders their whole deal. And then he brings me some of the spoils of the thing. I was like, this, this guy, I gotta have this guy. So he says to David, he's like, hey, from now on, you are my right-hand man. You are with me. You are like my personal bodyguard for life. And so 
fast forward, now the Philistines are going to go to war against the Israelites. They're going to they're fight Saul and Saul's army. So the Philistine king is like, I got to take my man out of Ziklag. He's coming with me. And so he calls up David, and he's like, oh, you're my ride or die. So they head out against Saul in the Israelite army. So Philistines plus David go out to fight Saul. On the way, the Philistine soldiers are like, what in the world is this Hebrew doing with us riding out to fight the other Hebrews? We know what he's going to do. In the middle of the battle, he's going to take his men, his soldiers, and they're going to start fighting us, and they're going to backstab us. You better send him back. So the king of the Philistines, he says, okay, David, they're not having it. You got to go back. So David goes back to Ziklag. In the meantime, when David was gone from Ziklag, the Amalekites, which are another enemy of the Israelites, the Amalekites attacked Ziklag and burned it down, took everything, took all the women and took all the children. And so all of David's men, all of David's soldiers, they, they tear their clothes, they, they, they're, they're weeping, they're furious, they're like, man, you took us away. And while we were away, they took our women and they took our children. And so David, David hits the dirt, humbles himself, prays to God, God, what in the world should I do? And God says, go after him, go get your women and children back. So David heads out in the direction that he thinks they would be. On the way, he encounters this Egyptian. This Egyptian was a slave to the Amalekites, um, but the Egyptian got sick. And so the Amalekites just ditched him. So David comes upon this Egyptian slave who was a part of the Amalekites. And now we got to remember, David's got all of his men who all lost their wives and their children. And, and if there was anybody to just take revenge on. It was this lone Egyptian Amalekite slave. Um, but David does something really compassionate there. He actually gives the guy some food, some water, in many ways kind of nurses him back to health. And he says to him, he's like, okay, were you with the raiding party? I was. They left me because I was sick and I was going to be a drag on them. He said, can you point us in the direction? And he's like, I can take you right to him. So David and his men go right to the Amalekites, wipe out all of the Amalekites, and get their women and children back, okay? Cut back to the Philistine army versus the, the Israelite army. The Philistine army just absolutely lays out the Israelites. And in that battle, Saul gets hit with an arrow. There's no way he's going to make it. He's going to die for sure. So he says to his armor bearer, and this is, in chapter, this is in chapter 31, he says to his armor bearer, he said, kill me. Because if you don't kill me, the Philistines are going to be on me, and they're going to they're torture me, and then they'll kill me. And the armor bearer says, there's no way that I'm going to do that. I'm not going to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. So Saul falls on his own sword, and the armor bearer does the same, falls on his sword. Word gets back to David. Um, word gets back to David in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that Saul and Saul's, all of Saul's men and Saul's son, Jonathan, who you remember, Jonathan was David's like, best friend. Um, they've all been killed. So this is, this is David's life. This trouble, this affliction, this running, this one bad thing after another. Um, and in the midst of this, David writes this, this Psalm 25. And, and, and so turn there, turn to Psalm 25. We're going to look quickly at four things, 
four things that God does for us in the middle of our affliction or in the middle of our trouble. And what we're going to learn is that afflictions and adversity are not a challenge to the gospel. They, not, they are not a challenge to the gospel. In fact, the gospel or the good news is good news because there are challenges in this life. The good news is proven in, in the challenges, in the trouble, in the afflictions of this life. So Psalm 25, let me just read through it quickly, and then, um, and, and, and then we'll just break out. And there's four, there's four things I want to quickly, uh, that we see that God does for us in our time of affliction or our time of trouble. Psalm 25, verse 1. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways, because according to your love, remember me, for you, O Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. So we see in verse 2 that David, as he kind of lets us in on his time of trouble, on his time of affliction, he, he brings us to the low place where he's at. One of the things I love about the, the scriptures, and, and if you feel like, gosh, the Bible is just so irrelevant, it's so just, it, it doesn't make any sense, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for my life, it doesn't connect to where I am, you, you just, you haven't, you haven't engaged with it, you haven't explored it. Because if you've ever felt like, like this, like, da- like David, like, okay, I, I'm crushed right now, I'm, I'm in distress, I'm in anguish. We see that God allows us to connect to another human who had real thoughts about life and real thoughts about God, the same thoughts that you and I have. But David, as he kind of brings us in, he first brings us low because David has this, this, this fear of being put to shame. In verse 2, he says, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. In, in, in verse 7, he says, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. Any, anybody have anything in your life you just are really hoping that God does not remember? Look, look, at, look at verse 11. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, my offense against you, my sin against you. Um, though, it, though, though it is great. So there's two kind of fears that David 
starts off with, really. And the, and the first is, is the fear of, of shame, is, is the fear of shame. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Like, if you've ever had, like, a time in your life where you've felt shame over things that you've done in the past or things that you've done recently, and, and, and that shame over those things has spoken a, a bigger word or a, a louder word than, than what the gospel or what, what God has said over you. Shame is the, the voice of the deceiver in your life. If, if you look in, in Genesis, um, Adam and Eve are, are told, don't eat of the tree of life. The deceiver comes and he says, look, here's the whole reason. God just really does not want you to be like him. Did he really say don't eat? And, and, the, and Adam and Eve, they eat they are fully aware of their condition. They, they are, are they're naked and ashamed, the scripture says. And so they hide. And God comes looking for them. He's like, where are you guys? And they said, look, we didn't want you to see us. We're, we're, we're naked. And he says to them, who, who told you? And shame does the same thing to you. Shame tells you something about yourself that's contrary to what the gospel, that's contrary to what God says over you. If God says that you are a son or a daughter and that in my presence is freedom, shame says to you, are you really? How could you be? You better hide. You better isolate. You better try to cover yourself up. You better not let anybody see you. And so the Lord says, who told you these things? Because whoever told you those things, that's not my voice. But David has a very real fear. He has a fear that you and I, if you, we are honest, have had, do have, this, this, my, my shame over my sin. And it could be stuff that some people know, that everybody knows, or nobody knows. You're afraid that shame is too big. God's not going to show up because of that shame. The other thing that David's afraid is like, I'm kind of afraid that maybe God won't come through. Anybody ever felt like that? Everybody ever felt like, man, this, this trouble, this affliction, this problem is too big. And it, and it just does not seem, I do not see a way where God can come. This relationship is too messed up. I, I'm, I'm financially in too much problem. My health is too far gone. My doubt is too big. My despair is too deep. This pit I'm in is too deep. I seriously am afraid that God is not going to be able to find me or come get me or rescue me. And, and, and David had that, that, same, that same thing. Look, look at verse 16. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. I'm lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look at my affliction and my distress and take away my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. What David is doing is what we do all the time. It's trouble on trouble on trouble on trouble on trouble on trouble. Yet when you're in a pit, and I, I've been in a pit. I don't know how many of you have ever had that experience. When you're in a pit, you cannot see your way out. And you try to talk your way out, but it just gets noisy in there, and you, you can't hear anybody else, right? You can't see your way out. And it's like this pit, I just keep falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. And that's what David is describing here. He's like, look, the, the, my troubles, my enemies, look how numerous there are. Look how many there are. And so David starts where, where a lot of us start. God, I'm afraid that my shame, 
My sin disqualifies me from rescue. And secondly, God, I just have doubts that you're even going to show up because the trouble is just too big. The pit is too deep. If you're, if you're under affliction, if you're under burden, if you're under trouble, God will provide for you. Maybe not the way that you want. Like, I, like David, if he, if he would have had a say in this, we, we wouldn't have the back half of 1 Samuel. Because if David had his way, if you had your way, if, my had, if I had my way in trouble and affliction and hardship, things would happen a lot quicker. But God will provide, he will show up, not always in the way that we want, but God brings what is designed for us. So four things, um, four things that, God, that God provides. The first thing is that God provides a design. God provides a design. Look in, in verse three. No one who hopes in you ever put, will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. So David repeats that. He's like, okay, God, I know you do have a design. I know you do have an intention. I know you do have a, have a plan. You have a sovereign rule. As everything rises against me and things start to fall apart, my hope is that this will not lead to shame, but this will lead to your glory. And if I have to be brought low, I know that I will not be ashamed, right? There's a difference between shame and humility. Shame is, again, the voice of the deceiver that leads to death. Humility is the voice of God that leads to life. Right? And it's not just this kind of trite pragmatism. It's not just like, well, it's all going to end up good. It's just, oh, everything works out in the end, right? So, like, anybody ever tell you that? When you're in trouble, when you're in hardship, you're like, God works all things for good. You're like, yeah, I can't, I can't see that right now. I can't see that right now. If this is not, David's not, David is not experiencing like this, like, bumper sticker, like, meme faith here. David's experiencing real life. Um, and and that, that's, the, that's the hope that we have in the midst of the struggle, that even though we can't see it, we know the whole universe is crying out for the design of God, and our hearts bear witness to the design of God in our lives. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, look, we don't lose weight. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. Let me read through this real quick. This is Paul talking about kind of present weakness and the reality of the resurrection for those who are followers of Jesus. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Rather, we've announced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves. Paul says that we don't preach like our own ability to climb out of the pit. We don't preach our own ability to, to fix everything. We don't preach our own ability to make it right. He says, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us a light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not for us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed. But we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life 
may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Might feel like little deaths, little funerals everywhere in your life. And Paul says life is at work in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. So in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your hardship, God provides a design. The second thing that he provides is guidance. Look at verse 4. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. He provides you a way. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, what other, nation, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way that the Lord is near us whenever we pray to him? That was the thing that was so, that just stuck out about Israel. Other nations had gods. Like having a god was not necessarily a novel thing or a thing that was unique to Israel. But no other nation had a god that was actually listening to them that was actually with them, that was actually speaking to them. And so God provides guidance. God provides a way. A lot of times we can come to the scripture, we kind of think of it as like this magic eight ball thing. Anybody familiar with those? Those still around? Magic eight ball, turn it upside down. Like, okay, will I get a date? Doesn't seem likely. You know, right? So, and we look at the scripture and we're kind of like, okay, what do I do? Do I, you know, where do I move? What do I do? Who do I date? What, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's not the way that the, that, the, that the scriptures are designed to work. What the scriptures, what the scriptures demand of us is that we, we, with our whole heart and with our whole life, we make a commitment to God's word. And, and, and through that, he brings you to a maturity that lets you apply the wisdom of God to your circumstances. And, and what, it, what it should look like is, is kind of like this. So you should be like this sponge in this bucket, right? And, and the bucket represents the word of God and you are, are this sponge. And what you should be doing is you should be soaking in it. You should be soaking in the word of God. So if, if your only experience of the word of God is like a Tuesday night, you know, and you just kind of dip the edge of your sponge in there. You're not soaking in the word of God. Or maybe it's a Tuesday night, maybe it's a Sunday, and you just, you take a little dip, right? That is not a saturated sponge. But what you should be doing, you should be going to the word of God, um, looking for the, 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 the ways of God, the wisdom of God, the character of God, so that when the hard things in life happen, like those squeezing, crushing things out of you comes the word of God. You're, you're, you're soaking in it. So there, there's heartache, there's trouble, there, there, there's hardship, there's affliction, there's persecution, there's all the things that are happening and will happen to you in life. And when they do, you're being squeezed and you're feeling, you're being squeezed and out of you, I'm going to get electrocuted up here, out of, out of you, out of you comes the word of God. When you're not soaked in the word of God, when you're not saturated in the word of God, and when these things happen that do happen, will happen, maybe are happening right now in life, and it squeezes you, it squeezes you and squeezes you and squeezes you, and you haven't been soaked, nothing comes out. When you need it the most, when I, when I need the word of God the most, when I'm being squeezed, if you're, if you're not soaking in it, nothing comes out. 
Nothing comes out. But if you, if you soak in it when the hardship comes, out of you will come the word of God. That's the way that the word of God is designed to work. So first, he provides a design. Second, he provides guidance. And quickly, he provides friendship. Look at verse 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. The, the word picture there is, and in some version it might even say that, like he provides this, this secret, secret counsel, which is a really cool kind of picture of what God provides. He provides this secret counsel, this, this intimate, this abiding relationship. What, what, what David's driving at is there, and like he gives, he gives his people the most intimate fellowship in times of affliction, in times of their hardship. A lot of times when we're in times of hardship or affliction or trouble, we, we try to escape. We, we, we try to escape. Maybe we uh, escape through entertainment, or maybe we escape through our pet sin, or maybe we escape through a substance, or maybe we escape through a relationship, or any other million distractions that we can come up with. And what, 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 what David is saying is like what God, what God does is, is he draws near to you. Escaping from affliction is not the way to friendship with God. What David is saying is that God actually, he will meet you in the middle of that affliction, but if you're always trying to escape it, you're gonna miss out on this, sweet, this sweetness of God, this intimacy of God, this secret counsel of, of God. Um, in, in the scripture, God uses this metaphor of, of bride. And one of the most difficult things that my wife and I have ever been through is the night when our, our daughter was born, our first daughter was born. She was born with complications. And I mean, to the, to the place where the, the nurse told us um, and, uh, and the NICU nurse told us is that it, it just doesn't look good for your baby. So she was hooked up to all kinds of hoses and machines and things are beeping. And, you know, we're new parents. We have no idea what's going on. She's super tiny. Like, we just don't, don't understand, like, what's happening there. Um, she, she's, like, God was faithful and kind of saw her through it and saw us through it. But I just, I think, I look back at that moment. And that night was, a, was one of the more, most difficult nights of my life. Um, but, but I think in that moment, my love for my wife and her love for me just grew, like, exponentially. And it's kind of one of those things where, like, I don't want to go through this right now. I really don't want to go through this. I do not want to go through the, the, the potential of having our first child not make it through her first night. But I wouldn't want to go through this with anybody else but you. And, and what, David, what David is kind of driving us to is like, look, this is, this is true love. Going through the most difficult affliction, trouble times in your life with someone that you love. And David says, no one loves you deeper than your heavenly father. The, the last thing that we see that God gives us in the midst of trouble and affliction is God gives us salvation. Look at verse 20 and 21. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. What is the greatest provision that God has ever provided for us? What's the greatest need that we have that he has seen to? The greatest provision that we've ever had from God is himself. The joy and the treasure of heaven. 
And, and David's prayer ultimately is answered in the person of Jesus. Our, our greatest affliction in life is our rebellion against a holy God. And it's remedied by the greatest love the world has ever known in the person of Jesus Christ. And so really what Psalm 25 kind of drives us to is this question of, have I trusted in the ultimate provision in the middle of my ultimate affliction? First John chapter 2 tells us that we have an advocate. We have someone out front on our behalf in our hour of greatest need. The, the one who was abandoned by all his friends in his hour of need is an intimate and sacrificial friend to us in, in ours. God provides us with a design. God provides us with, with friendship. God provides us with guidance. And God provides us with salvation.